Please take your Bibles and turn with me this evening to the Gospel of John, chapter 6. And I would direct your attention to verses 67 and 68, John 6, verses 67 and 68. We touched on this text, I believe, uh, in connection with the series of sermons through the life of Peter. Uh, But this evening we come back to it, same text, different sermon, because as we come to the last Wednesday of 2023, I believe these words are especially appropriate to have their claims uh, pressed uh, upon our own hearts here at the end of, of the year. So John 6, verses 67, 68. Then said Jesus unto the twelve, Will ye also go away? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. The response to the Lord Jesus Christ is always twofold. There are those who are drawn to him, who stick to him. And there are those who are repelled and driven away from him. Children, you can think of a magnet. You know, I'm sure, that a magnet has two poles. And you can take two magnets, especially if they're a little stronger type of magnet, and you put uh, two sides together and they'll, they'll stick, right? They may even pull out of your fingers and stick together. But then you flip one of those magnets around and try to push the two sides together and you can't, right? They, they shift. You can't push. They're pushing away from each other. It's a good picture for us of what I'm describing in terms of these two responses to the Lord Jesus Christ, those drawn to him, who stick fast to him, and those who are driven uh, away from him. You'll remember, of course, the context here of the Gospel of John chapter 6. It opens uh, with the the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000, the astonishment of all who gathered on that occasion. It's followed by another miracle of the Lord Jesus Christ uh, walking on the waters, and then we have him coming uh, to the synagogue at Capernaum, and we hear of Christ as the bread of life, and we have Christ set before us in the call that uh, we must eat his flesh and his blood in order that we might be saved, and all of the wonderful mysteries of what that entails in terms of faith in Christ and union uh, with the Lord Jesus Christ. But it's At the end of all of that, at the end of that series of very significant portions of the Bible here in chapter 6, that we come to our text, this question that Jesus poses to his 12 disciples. And we're going to consider two things uh, this evening. First of all, going away from Christ. So first of all, going away from Christ. Verse 67 Then said Jesus unto the twelve, Will ye also go away? Now those who first heard the Lord Jesus Christ speak these words and all of the other words uh, that he spoke as recorded for us uh, in the four Gospels. All of those who heard him heard the only perfect preacher who has ever lived. The only perfect preacher who has ever walked the face of this earth. Uh, The multitudes here in chapter 6 and elsewhere heard the very best preaching that the world has ever known. They heard the preaching 
of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. You'll remember how they commented, no man ever spoke like this man. You'll remember on another occasion that in contrast to the, to the scribes and the Pharisees, they say, well, unlike them, you know, he, his teaching has power, right? He has power and authority in his preaching. This is the best preaching. And of course, in addition to that, they also not only heard of miracles, they saw them firsthand. They observed them with their own eyes, astounding, supernatural, miraculous events in which the Lord Jesus healed the blind and raised the dead and cured the leper and, and uh, cast out demons and so on and so forth. And so they were eyewitnesses and earwitnesses of all of these things. And yet the passage tells us that many of them went away. Verse 66, from that time, many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. Notice that it says many. So it's not as if there was like this, this little tiny minuscule you know, group who were sort of um, belligerent and so on, and they, they turned their backs and, and walked away. No, the passage says that many. Many who heard the best preacher and the best preaching, the one who was the God-man, the Messiah himself, the Lord Jesus Christ, many who heard him went away. They turned their backs upon all that Jesus Christ is and all that Jesus Christ had said and followed him no more, walked no more with him, as the passage says. And so it is really no shock at all, no shock at all to us that ever since the time of the Lord Jesus Christ, that hundreds and thousands and tens of thousands and, yea, hundreds of thousands have done the exact same. They've heard the word of God. They've heard the preaching of Jesus Christ. Christ has been set before them. They've observed so many wonderful mysteries with regards to the glory of the gospel, and they do an about face. They turn their back on the Savior, and they walk no more with him. We've seen it right here, up close and personal, in our own congregation, as the whole world and the history of the world is seen repeated over and over again. To go away, Jesus is saying, will ye also <clears throat> go away? To go away. To go away from what exactly? To go away from whom exactly? Well, it's clear, isn't it? Christ himself. To go away is to go away from the Lord Jesus Christ, which is to say that it is to go away from all that is good. It is to actually run in the opposite direction, to flee, to turn, to drift to remove oneself from what is the very best of all. To turn one's back on all that is, that is good. You think, well, how could this happen? You know, what exactly brought these many people uh, to this situation? And if you look at chapter 6, you can kind of, you see it developing, right? It's, it's developing and unwinding and until it comes to its climax here in, in our passage. So if you go back earlier in the chapter, <clears throat> in verse 26, 
Jesus says this, Ye seek me, not because ye saw the miracles, but, but, but because ye did eat of the loaves and were filled. So there's a clue. They were using the Lord Jesus Christ for their own gratification. Now, in this case, it happened to do with food, with bread, right? They were hungry and their hunger pains were satisfied through the bread that the Lord provided in the miracle of the feeding of, of the 5,000. But underneath that, <clears throat> what's happening is they're using the Lord Jesus Christ for personal gain. And so their approach to Christ, his ministry, his message is really what, what do we get out of this? And this can, this can apply in all sorts of different ways, right? You have people who come uh, to the Christian faith, they come uh, to the Reformed faith even, and they're thinking to themselves, well, here we finally have the best answers on how to have a good marriage. Here we can learn how to have a good family and we can make much of our family and our family will be everything we had hoped and we can have all these benefits or we will have ability to make sense of the world and answer intellectual questions or interface with uh, society. We'll understand how the world works and how it was created and how God's put it together, the principles that are needed and so on and so forth. And people in that, in that vein can be approaching Christ and his message and his ministry in terms of personal gain. What's in this for me? What will I get out of it? So that's one clue. And then you, you see if a little bit later in verse 30, he says, uh, they said therefore unto him, what sign showest thou then that we may see and believe thee? What dost thou work? And so they're asking for more than he's giving. They're asking, well, we're not content with what you've done. We're not content with what you're saying. We're not content, in other words, with who you are. We want something else. We want you to do something dazzling. We want to see more signs. We want to see different signs, right? They're looking for the wow factor, if you will. They want novelty. They want what is spectacular. And this too is an ongoing problem where the lust is for something shocking and powerful and spectacular not just in signs and wonders and whatever else. That, that's, of course, alive and well in our own day, but it can take other shapes and other forms as well. But what, what ends up happening, you begin to see things on the inside uh, that begin to stir in verse 44. Uh, uh, no, in verse 41, you see that they begin to murmur. It says, the Jews then murmured at him because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. So now there are elements of his message which they find unsatisfying. They find objectionable. And they're, they're fine when he's saying certain things, but now he's speaking about the bread. He is the bread that's come down from heaven. Well, this is a bridge too far for us. And so they begin to complain. They're murmuring in their hearts. They're murmuring to one another about the message. And they're picking pieces that they find don't match their liking and what is, what is suitable to them and so on. And that breaks out even further in verse 50. Uh, <clears throat> they go on to say, or they go on to, to argue further and speak about um, murmuring among themselves. Jesus in verse 50 is saying, this is the bread which cometh down from heaven that a man may eat thereof and not uh, die. Verse 52, the Jews therefore strove among themselves saying, 
How can this man give us his flesh to eat? And so there's strife, there's murmuring, there's dissatisfaction. We see this a lot if you're looking for it. You know, Nicodemus comes and says, you're an amazing teacher. You're phenomenal. We all know you're from God. You know, we've heard and seen the things you've done and so on and so forth. And Jesus says to him, you must be born again, Nicodemus. What does he do? He objects to the message. How is that possible? You know, that this isn't possible. This isn't something that, that you can ask of, of anybody. This doesn't make sense to me. He's objecting to, to the message. And then it gets even stronger. And so in verse 60, many therefore of his disciples, when they had heard this, said, this is a hard saying. Who can bear it? Who can hear it? This is a hard saying. Who can hear it? Now what's happening? Those who are numbered among his disciples who have been following him, they're, they're saying, we, what are they saying in essence? We won't receive what you say. Who can, who can receive this? Who can, who can hear this? You know, we, we can't hear this. We, we can't believe this. We can't accept this. And so now they're refusing to receive the message that Jesus is, is giving to them, right? This business about blood, right? There's always an objection to blood in every generation everywhere, going all the way back to Cain, who wanted a bloodless sacrifice to the present hour. No one wants to hear about a crucified Savior and, sh and blood that is shed as an atoning sacrifice in order to cleanse people from sins. This is unacceptable to the unbelieving ear, to the unbelieving heart. And so they're not receiving it. They're saying, this is a hard saying. This is difficult. This is not... This is not something that we would fancy and so on. And Jesus says in verse 61, uh, doth this offend you? So he's putting his finger on it. He's saying actually under that objection is an offense that they're actually offended by him. They're, they're, they're upset with him. They're taking issue with him for the things that he is saying. They're offended what? At his doctrine. And then he drops the hammer. In verse 65, therefore said I unto you that no man can come unto me except it were given unto him of my father. What is he saying? He's exploding their world. He's saying salvation is of grace. You are so wrecked. You are so hopeless. You are so absolutely sinful. You are so incapable and unable to do anything that you'll never receive anything unless the father grants it to you. It has to be of grace. And immediately we're told, from that time, many of his disciples went back. We're not going to hear sovereign grace. They walked no more with him. Well, my friends, these, these trends are all alive and well, but the fact is that, that they're, they're, sam they're a sampling, if you will, of all of the kinds of things that come you know, in our age, well, there are many who think of, of the gospel and of the biblical religion as outdated. You know, we live in a, in a, in a, in a fast-paced world with, you know, technological prowess and progress constantly being set before us. And there's all of the developments. And people think that the new philosophical ideas that trickle down and what's pawned off as education in the universities is vogue and insightful and deep and amazing, and it's a truckload of nonsense. It's garbage. It's irrational. It's most of it, the roots of most of it have all been seen before and absolutely decimated and demolished in the past.
But you know, if you go to any age, you go back 100 years, 500 years, 1,000 years, 2,000 years, in the days of the Lord Jesus Christ, the worldly Herodians thought that his message was foolishness. The liberal Sadducees thought this was intolerable. I mean, the, with Paul, the Stoic and Epicurean, Epicurean philosophers thought, this is a babbler that's speaking. This is of no use to uh, where the intelligentsia, right? Where did Stoicism and Epicurean, Epicureanism end up? In the, in the garbage pail. Where did the biblical religion end up? Infiltrating the entire world and still is. Untoppable, undefeatable, unbreakable. But the fact is, there's nothing new in our circumstances. There are trends afoot that want to want to pawn off all this new, insightful, you know, under very, you know, warm, fuzzy garb and language about acceptance and tolerance and and uh, and so on and so forth, and and all of these ideas that are brought in under that guise and 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 as in a contra as a way of contrast there's the biblical religion and it's like man this is this is old news i mean this is bigotry this is dogmatism this is all the stuff that we've grown up out of they think my point is nothing's new and the fact is that those who sit under the gospel are also exposed to all these other influences that are swirling in the atmosphere that we breathe around us our young people here all of this stuff in the university, they are exposed to it in society and the people that they work with and so on and so forth. And it can begin to trickle in and, and people sip the Kool-Aid just little by little until finally they begin to murmur about the teaching of the, of the Bible and begin to be offended at some of what the scripture says. And begin to take objection and say, these things are, yeah, these are too hard. These, you know, these aren't things we can hear. We're not going to receive these. I say all of that to say this is as relevant as it ever has been. And it will remain relevant long after we are gone. But what was the root problem underneath all of we, what we see in chapter 6? And what is the ongoing root problem underneath things in our own day? Jesus gives us the answer in verse 64. But there are some of you that believe not. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were that believed not and who should betray him. What's the root problem? Unbelief. Unbelief is the root problem. Jesus had charged them earlier on this score in verse 29. Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God that ye believe on him whom he hath sent. But he says, no, no, that's the one thing you will not do. It is unbelief that lies underneath all the objections, all of the distancing, all of the turning, all of the uh, rejection of the, Lord, of the Lord Jesus Christ. To go away is an expression of unbelief. To go to the Lord Jesus Christ is biblical language for faith. The opposite of unbelief. Coming to him, to receive him, to lay hold of him, to believe upon him, and so on. But the point here that I want to press is that something happened in their heart before their feet. Right? They went away. The disciples went back and walked no more with him. But before it ever registered in their feet, something had already happened in their heart. 
It was the unbelief that was going there. And this is what you must beware of. All of you that are here this evening is what is going on in the heart, right? There can be drifting in the heart where it's never seen in the feet yet. There can be keeping a safe distance from the truth. We'll hear it and ponder it, consider it, shelve it, you know, for, for further consideration later. Or we can be picky and choosy and say, well, this we like and this part we're not so keen on and so on and so forth. Keeping a safe distance, as it were, wickedly from the truth. But doing everything to avoid being touched by it, impacted by it, affected by it, transformed and changed by it, being brought under the power of it. If you find yourself in a position where you hear the word of God being preached, whatever the text and whatever the doctrine that's being set forth, whatever its applications, and you find yourself creating space in order to buffer the impact, you are in trouble. You're in trouble. This is unbelief that is taking place. People say, well, I'm not persuaded. You know, I hear it, but I'm not persuaded. There's, there's nothing, right? The seduction of the world's words. The world never has a lack of words of their own. And they have all sorts of seductive garb in which they come to us. And the world will blare its, its message all day long and all night long. And there are those who will bend. You're tempted to bend your ear to hear what they're saying and to hear what God's saying. And you think to yourself, well, there's some good points that they're saying here. And, and it begins to influence you in terms of your relationship to the truth of God's word. The seduction of the world's words. Isn't this the tactic the devil has always used? He's a creature. He's finite. He's got a limited arsenal, folks. Right? He's not like the Lord Jesus, who's infinite in his resources. And so when the devil's coming along in 2023 and saying, hath God said, it's like, where have you been, man? He's been saying this for 6,000 years. Hath God said? Raising question marks about what the Lord actually teaches. But the problem is this. Detachment from the truth leads to departing from Christ. This is what's happening in John chapter 6. If you entertain detachment from the truth of God's word, you're en route to departing from the Lord Jesus Christ. Whatever language you use, Felix says, you know, Felix listens to the preaching of God's word, sends Paul away and says, well, I'll call you, you know, at a more convenient season. Doesn't that sound very, you know, comfortable? I'll consider this at a more convenient season. That's unbelief. That's departing from the Lord Jesus Christ. And in fact, it is defiance. Because the Lord commands us. He commands you to come to him. And you are going away from him. It's like mama saying, Johnny, come here. And Johnny turns around with his two little chubby legs and bolts in the opposite direction. He's defiant. This is what's happening. It's the Lord's commanding us to come to him. And there is this inclination to go away from him, to go away from Christ. But to go away from Christ 
always entails going to something else. It's not like, well, I'm not going to go to anything. No. To not go to Christ, to go away from him, is to go to something else. If I'm going to go away from that door, I'm heading, I'm going to that door or that one back there. I'm always heading somewhere. And so to go away from Christ is to go to something else. And this is where the devil, his lure comes, right, in Eden. You shall, you shall not surely die. You, you won't surely die. You, know, you, can, you can go ahead and venture out here in defiance to, to the Lord, but it's this, do you see the deception in it? Do you see the, de the devil's deception? Because what's happening is with the Lord Jesus Christ, you are being called to blessing. You're being called to limitless, unimaginable, unending blessing in this world and the world to come. You're called to the greatest possible blessing, the most solidity, and strength, and confidence, and encouragement, and consolation, and everything else that you could possibly want, kind of blessing. And so to go away from him is to go away from blessing, which is to say that you are going to the curse. The opposite of blessing, the heading away from blessing is heading toward the curse curse of God, the judgment of God, the punishment for sin, and so on and so forth. And that's where this leads us, isn't it? Because on the last day, which is coming and is more certain than tomorrow is coming, the last day, those who, like these disciples, went back and walked no more with him, those who are found going away from the Lord Jesus Christ, your choice on the last day will be confirmed and irrevocable. You chose to go away from Christ. You chose to go away from Christ in this life. But at the last day, you will be sent away in the world to come. Because the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, from that august throne, are two. Depart, three. Depart from me. Depart from me. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. Depart from me into everlasting destruction. The choice to go away from him results in being sent away in the world to come. Only to go into the, into the, the great abyss along with countless thousands of others where sermons like the one this evening will be replayed in your mind. Your mind's not eradicated at the judgment. Sermons will be replayed in your ear while gnawing, while your conscience is gnawing away at you like a worm for eternity. Warned and warned again. Warned of going away from the Lord Jesus Christ. This is not only true for the unconverted, it's true for the Christian as well. For the Christian, there are various degrees and diverse ways in which we can be found going away from Christ. In our hearts, there can be a temptation to murmur at the truth. There are certain truths that sit uncomfortably, certain demands that the Bible places upon you that you would like to 
postponed for consideration to some other time. Things that I need to work on at some point. But you will not receive as the Lord gives it. Indeed, you murmur or attempted to murmur at the truth. And, and, and instead, there's, there's a temptation to tolerate inside our hearts coldness toward Christ. To tolerate distance from the Lord Jesus Christ. To tolerate indifference to the things that belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. And there are those who, in such condition, begin looking for excuses. They look for what seem like credible excuses to neglect worship, to neglect attendance at the prayer meeting or Sabbath morning or Sabbath evening or whatever. There's good reasons that they feel they have to do so because of this pressing issue or the other pressing issue or, and so on and so forth. But at the end of the day, they're drifting. We'll hear more about this in Hebrews in a couple weeks. Jesus comes to you this evening. He says, will ye also go away? That's the question. Will, will ye also go away? Family worship, private worship, prayer, meditation, all these things left off for more pressing concerns. Drifting from the word to a preoccupation with the world. The ways of the world, the things of the world the interests of the world, the, the, the lure of the world, and so on. Jesus stands in our midst this evening and he asks you, you in particular, will ye also go away? There are many who go away. There are many who begin, right? They, they begin with following the Lord, it would seem. And they go part way, like these disciples did. But they are offended at last, and they depart. Lord Jesus Christ says, if any man draw back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. And so there's going away from Christ. But then secondly, there's going to Christ. Secondly, going to Christ. So Jesus asks, will ye also go away? Verse 68 then, P then Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. Peter answers Jesus' question with a question. He answers the question with a question. Indeed, as you know, it's a rhetorical question. And it had the intended effect was a bold affirmation. To whom, to, to whom else shall we go? Right? He, he's saying, there is nowhere else to go. That's what he's saying. There is nowhere else to go. There is no one else to whom to go. He's saying, it's impossible. You know, Will ye also go away? Lord, that would be impossible. We have nowhere else to go. There's no one else that we can run to. So the question is, what did Peter see? What did Peter know that others around him, perhaps you this evening, don't see? Or these didn't see? Here's what Peter saw. Christ alone had what we need. 
Christ alone had what we need, has what we need. Christ alone can supply what we need. That at the bottom is what Peter is seeing. He's seeing that only Christ has it and only Christ can supply it. It's similar to what the Lord's taught us in the Psalms. You know, we, we sing from, from Psalm 73, whom do we have in heaven? There is none upon the earth that we desire beside thee. Right? That's the language of similar to Peter. We're saying the same sort of thing. Who is there in heaven? No one. You know, who on earth that we would desire besides thee, besides the Lord? None. You can search, ransack the whole heavens, ransack the earth, the universe, behind the stars, under the sea, under the earth, wherever. There's nowhere, no one, nothing beyond the Lord himself. And so Peter says, Lord, to whom shall we go? He recognizes this is the Lord. The one to whom I am speaking is none other than the Lord himself. There's none like him. He is incomparable in every conceivable way. Even in the question he's asking, will ye also go away? You notice what's happening. The, the disciples that are on the outskirts are beginning to drift. They're turning their backs. They're walking. They're going home. They're going back to their lives, other things that they're interested in and so on. Jesus, the text says, turns to the twelve. And says, will ye also go away? What's happening here? You see something of the heart of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. He, as the God-man, is observing what's happening. He's been observing all those steps that we noted in chapter 6. He's seeing now what it's come to, the culmination here. And the heart of Jesus Christ is grieved. He's grieved. He's broken inside. To see these, these disciples turning away from him, going back, not following him anymore. His heart's grieved. Why? He's the shepherd. He's the great shepherd. He's the, he's the good shepherd. And he's seeing those who are reckless in their, in their refusal to come under him and under his, his tender care. And no doubt the Lord Jesus Christ sees more than that. He sees this one and that one and the other one and this handful over here and that little crowd that's walking off. And as, he, as his eye traces them, looking at their backs as they walk away, the Lord Jesus Christ can see all of the history that goes before them. All the history that's going to unfold. He can see how their hearts are being hardened and how they're going to continue to be made harder and harder and harder he can see, as he's watching them walk away, how they're going to, in the days ahead, be gathering wrath to themselves. Gathering, storing up wrath for the day of wrath. The Lord Jesus Christ can see all of this. He can see all of the, all of the, 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 the consequences that will flow in the wake of their disobedience and defiance and the destructive influences upon them and those that they're connected with and all of the dishonor that will be brought to, to the name of God and everything else, he can see them appearing before him again at the last day. No back turned to him now. Now they appear face to face with the one whom they knew and rejected. And they will have to look into his eyes which burn with fire. And he can see as he will declare and pronounce of them, depart from me. 
You're cursed. You're done. You're damned. The Lord Jesus Christ standing in John 6 sees all of this. And we see him. His heart is grieved. His heart is broken over what's happening here. My friends, when he turns to the 12, there is love in this question. Will ye also go away? There's love in that question. Teaming up in the heart of the Lord Jesus Christ. What's he doing? He is watching over his people. He's guarding them. He's watching them. He's making them alert. He's, 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 he's hemming them in, as it were. And that's exactly what he's doing with you this evening. And he comes to you this evening and he comes in his word and says to you, will ye also go away? It's the heart of a loving shepherd who is drawing you to himself, going, bringing you to go to the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter says, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. Where does Peter get this idea? He has the words of eternal life, the, this language of, of eternal life. Where did Peter learn this? He learned it from the Lord. He's actually bringing the Lord's own words back. Jesus in chapter 6 alone has spoken of eternal life five times. He speaks of eternal life 17 times in the book of John, 25 times in the Gospels. Peter is actually bringing back to the Lord the very things that he's received from the Lord. Lord, you're the one who has the words of eternal life. He's heard it from Christ himself. Now you think of the contrast, right? Here are those who are going away from Christ what do they say? This is a hard saying. Who can hear it? Peter, by way of contrast, says, thou hast the words of life. Hard words, a hard saying that can't be heard in contrast to words of eternal life. This is the difference between the believer and the unbeliever. The believer sees the word for what it is, as something teeming with life. He says, this is, these are words of eternal life. To go away would be to go away from life, the source of life, the way of life, all of the benefits and bounty of life. To go away is to actually go in pursuit of death, is to go toward the direction of death. It's self-destruction. It's a... It, it, it's brokenness and devastation and all of the ugliness that comes with, with death. Jesus comes and he says, in essence, the language of, of Ezekiel, why will ye die, O house of Israel? The Lord Jesus Christ is coming and he's do doing so this evening. He's saying, he's saying to, 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 to you and to, to all of us, I don't delight in the death of the wicked. Why will ye die? Why? It's so needless unnecessary. This is not something that has to be, as it were. Why will ye die? Turn, turn ye and live, the Lord says. This is what's happening in this passage. The Lord's at work, and he's calling and arousing and awaking us 
And he's saying in whatever degree and in whatever way and, and however it's manifesting itself and whatever our spiritual condition is, I have the words of eternal life. Do not turn into the path of death. Why would you die, O church of Christ? Turn ye and live. Thou hast the words of life. Jesus said, I am come that ye might have life and have it more abundantly. He is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He is the Son of the living God. He is a divine Savior, which is to say that he is the one who is absolutely sufficient for anything and everything we could ever desire, need, or want. He is divine. He's the eternal Son of God made flesh. He is a divine Savior and the only Redeemer who is able to save us to the uttermost. And so everything we could ever want is found in him. Everything we ever lack, found in him. Everything that is necessary in him, it's all in him. And there is nothing outside of him. Nothing that is good, nothing that is needful. God the Son, through whom we come to God the Father. This prevents backsliding. Will ye also go away this evening? Will you? Will you? Will ye also go away? What's the Lord doing? He's reeling us in. He's wooing us back. He's awakening us. Oh, there's a danger. I could be drifting. Right? Because he could see with his 12 disciples, the crowds are beginning to disperse. People are departing. People are shaking their heads. They're murmuring under their breath. They're beating a path in another direction than the direction that Jesus is going. And Jesus recognizes, my disciples could be carried away with the crowd. And he cuts them off at the pass. And he pulls them back to himself. Are you being carried away with the crowd this evening? Is the noise of the world drawing you. Will ye also go away? No one else will because no one else can provide what Christ does. No one else will ever provide it because no one else can provide it. No one can provide what Christ provides. Body and soul, time and eternity, comprehensive, everything in life, Jesus only, Christ alone can provide it. And the devil blinds, he blinds souls. People think to themselves, you think to yourself, I don't have to, if I, if I commit myself, if I turn to Christ, if I come to Christ, if I come on his terms, if I submit to him, if I receive him, if I believe in him, if I look and acknowledge my utter train wreck of a soul and I lay hold of Christ alone for salvation and I bring myself under his lordship, what are the pleasures I'm going to have to give up? I'm not going to be able to live for myself, live for the things that really get me riled up and excited. I'm not going to be able to live for all the things that the world says are so wonderful and so on and so forth. What nonsense is this? It's absolute nonsense. 
Oh, that God would enable me somehow to persuade you of the absolute nonsense. What do we give? We give our mud pies in exchange for the Lord's exquisite pleasures. Right? The, the Lord, in calling us to himself, in calling us to the gospel, is calling us to exchange what we think is good for better wine, for the best wine. And once, once you've begun to drink the really good wine, you're not going to have a taste. You're not going to be pining over the loss of having to, to drink the cheap stuff anymore. The world's pleasures. You'll lose your taste for what you now think is delectable. And you will have an appetite for what you cannot even now imagine. To taste and see that the Lord is good. Christ's joys are greater than all of the pleasures of sin. His joys are greater than all the pleasures of sin. I mean, if you've ever known an, a truly exercised, earnest, God-fearing Christian, and they may have had horrific circumstances in which they've lived, if you've gotten close to them, if you've seen them, if you've been up on the inside and know something about their soul, you will have to shake your head in disbelief at their unquenchable joy, at their satisfaction in what they found in the Redeemer. And if you've ever been up close and personal to those whom the world would herald as the success stories and as the ones who have made it and the ones who have it and so on and so forth, then you will know and will have seen some of the greatest misery there is to see. In fact, there are books on it. You can read out of my library books on the greats and what a miserable life only to go out into everlasting darkness for eternity. The Lord isn't calling us in calling us to himself. He isn't calling us and calling us to the gospel, to something absolutely terrible. He's calling us to something that is absolutely exquisite. But isn't it interesting that what drives the world away, what drives the unbelieving away, is the very thing that, dra that draws the believer to the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, thou art the Lord. None other. And will have no other. And thou art the one who has the words of eternal life. And thou art the one who is the son of the, son of the living God. Thou art the Christ. All of these things send the world running. But they draw the believer with affection and attraction and sweetness. My friends, there is none other name given under heaven among men whereby we can be saved. This name only, the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you know from singing it, his name forever shall endure. Last like the sun it shall. Men shall be blessed in him and blessed. All nations shall him call. Let's stand together for prayer.
Almighty God in heaven, grant that we would have ears to hear and grant that we would have hearts to respond. To whom can we go? For thou hast the words of eternal life. O Lord, draw us. Give us a sight of the Savior. Give us to close with him by faith, to abide in him, to stick to him, to persevere with him as the Son of the living God. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.